The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, good morning everyone. Nice to see you again. <laughs> and uh, it's gone from summer to winter in one day, but that's, that's nice. I'm with my kind of background, winter is good. So <laughs> it's good. It kind of makes it a bit fresh, makes clears the mind up a little bit when it gets nice and cold. Anyway, that's my perspective on it. Uh, so, uh, um, so we're going to continue where we left off yesterday. And we are looking at the sutta called the Mahatatarisaka Sutta, the Great Forty. And uh, as always, these are all just different ways of looking at the Noble Eightfold Path. And uh, so we're going to continue with that. And yesterday we had a look at the idea very briefly on right view uh, in its, some of its manifestations. Uh, and now we're going to have carry on to the next factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is Samma Sankappa, right, often translated as a right intention. Uh, and we're going to have a look at this in uh, uh, just a little bit of detail and see what comes out of that. Uh, so... Uh, Today I'm going to enlist some help. This help comes from a laptop, laptop helper. This is what the modern monks carry around. Yeah, in the old days we had ball and robe, now we have ball, robe and laptop. Uh, this is kind of the modern uh, <laughs> modern thing. So anyway, it kind of comes in handy sometimes. <coughs> okay, so um, uh, we have coming to intention. And um, again, uh, you notice that the pattern of the sutta is the same as we go through this sutta. Uh, so for each factor, it says basically the same thing. But it's quite the, the system, the way it is presented is quite unique to this particular sutta. And the Buddha says therein, bhikkhus, mendicants, everyone, uh, right view comes first. And how does right view come first? One understands wrong intention as wrong intention and right intention as right intention. This is one's right view. Yeah, so, um, first of all, this word intention, the Pali word is sankappa. And it is an interesting word and it can be quite hard to really pin it down exactly what it means. Uh, uh, Bhante Sujato translates as right thought. Uh, Ajahn Brahm sometimes uses right motivation. Uh, I sometimes translate it as right purpose or right aim or right goal. Yeah. And so which one of these is correct? Is all of them correct or one of them correct? Is one of these people deluded? Uh, maybe, maybe I'm the deluded one because uh, how can I, you know, I can't say Ajahn Brahm is deluded. That would be really bad. <laughs> So, so what is what is going on here? Well, how do we pin down the meaning of these words? And the, the reality is that uh, many of these words can be seen from many different angles. Yeah, there often isn't one right translation, and the other ones are all wrong. Uh, often it is a matter of perspective, matter of uh, your van vantage point that you, when you look at these things. Uh, and if you start off with something like 
uh, right intention. Obviously, intention is about where you're heading. Yeah, what are you intending to do? It's about your goal. It's about your aim. It's about your purpose. Uh, and if you think about the Noble Eightfold Path, it makes very good sense that out of right view arises the right way of aiming. You're aiming in a new direction. You used to be interested in certain things that used to be very important to you. But as your view straightens up, as you see the limitations of the ordinary worldly way of perceiving things, yeah, you start to change your attitude, your priorities change, your values change. Yeah, and values are the things that direct our lives and give our life purpose. And for many people, the values might be very simple things like just kind of, you know, uh, getting on with life and and enjoying things to the maximum and just, you know, living a fairly hedonistic lifestyle and thinking about your status and all of these kind of things. But the more you have right view about things, you start to understand how severely limited those things are. And you imbue your life with spiritual values. You understand that what actually matters. These things are fine. There's nothing wrong with status as such unless you really attach to it. There's nothing wrong with material positions as such unless you attach overly attached to them. But you understand that there are other things that are more important. So whatever you have of worldly things, you imbue that with spiritual values, with kindness, with care, with compassion, with understanding, with all of these things that actually develop the mind rather than just develop the physical world, or the physical things or the sensual things or the sensory things of the world, the worldly pleasures, if you like. So this is how your right view gradually change around. And you can see how this is very gradual. It doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, You start, and then more and more you change around. And one day you're facing in the opposite direction of what you used to face. Yeah, And it's like you know, you used to be looking in that direction, now you're looking in the other direction. And this other direction is much more beautiful. Why didn't I look there all along? This is where I should be looking. This is where real happiness is to be found. This is what actually matters in life. And then you come around. That is what basically stream entry is about. It's about this turning around 180 degrees, uh, thinking about things in an entirely new way. Uh, your intention, your purpose, your goal in life has changed uh, completely from what it used to be. Uh. But uh, there is more to intention. Right thought, for example. How does right thought, how does that, is that to be distinguished from right intention? Is it really different? Uh, and of course, the reality is that thought and intention are very closely related to each other. The way we intend, the way we, our purpose in life, uh, our thoughts are going to fall, tend to fall into line with that. So a way of knowing your intention is to know your thoughts. How are you think? How do you think about the world? And every on the other, that's on one side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, every thought is imbued with intention. You can't really think without intending. Sometimes people say, oh yeah, these thoughts that just come into my mind. But not really. You invite the thoughts into your mind. You want to think like that. You cannot think without intention. You cannot think without actually desiring to have that thought. And sometimes that's kind of, it's not very nice sometimes, yeah? <laughs> because some of these thoughts, we don't really want to think these thoughts. And yet we actually have to admit that deep down somewhere, we actually want to think them. Yeah, otherwise they wouldn't be there. So intention and thinking uh, are very, very closely related to each other. Uh, and uh, if your thoughts aren't pure and fully pure, uh, yeah, it means that there are some 
uh, slightly murky intentions going on in the depth of your unconscious mind or whatever it is. Uh, so you want to clear that out. Uh, you want to sort that out. And don't feel bad about that. Uh, almost everybody has, uh, you know, some impure thoughts. Uh, is there anyone here who never has an impure thought? Uh, yeah, I told you. Yeah, you are really good people. Yeah, you are the cream of the crop. And even you sometimes have bad thoughts. Yeah. So that's okay then. So it must be fine. So don't worry too much about it. It's more like, okay, just being aware of it. Okay, this is what is going on. Uh, how can I change for the better? That's really what it is about. Uh, so thought, right? Thought is not really wrong either. And the word sankapa, the way it is used in the suttas, uh, is often used in a way where it is almost used synonymously with the word vitakka. Vitakka really means thought in the suttas. Uh, and sometimes it is used more like chaitana, like uh, volition or will. Uh, so what about the idea of motivation then, which is Ajahn Brahm's uh, idea? I really like to, to kind of argue with Ajahn Brahm, yeah? <laughs> and uh, I often sit next to him because, you know, he, he's, I'm sitting kind of next to him in the line and sometimes he just looks, oh no, Ajahn Brahmali is coming, now we're going to have another uh, discussion about something. No, I'm just I'm exaggerating, of course. But um, so and so, what is, does it make any sense to call it motivation? And it does, because intention is always driven by something. Intention in its own right is just a goal. Why do you have that goal? And the thing that uh, makes a goal is, what, is the thing that drives us. That's the motive. Yeah? The motive is what actually makes us have a particular intention. Uh, so there's no such thing as intention without motivation. Uh. So motivation is not wrong. And if you look at the way intention is normally understood, uh, intention is understood intentions of sensuality, uh, yeah, of, of uh, enjoying yourself in the sensory world, uh, intentions of ill will. Uh, yeah? Well, ill will and, and sensory desire, these are motivations. Yeah? These are the driving forces behind this. You know, your goal isn't to have ill will. That's, you know, that would be really weird if that was your goal. But there can be a driving force, uh, and often a very compelling and powerful driving force that fo almost forces you to act, especially if the ill will or the desire is strong. Yeah? It really makes you act. Yeah? And um, so that is the problem. So all of these things are just different ways uh, of thinking about the same word, sankappa, and they're all very closely linked to each other. Uh, this is one of the fun parts about uh, reading the suttas, is to kind of try to understand what these terms mean from different angles. Uh, yeah, And uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I enjoy these things, and I talk about these things. Uh, and usually people don't leave the room when I talk about it, so I assume they also enjoy these things. Yeah. If I start to see people kind of sneaking out of the back, then I know, okay, maybe I should change my tune a little bit. Uh, otherwise, uh, <laughs> but actually, I don't really, I'm not sure if I care all that much, to be honest. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so um, let's, um, let's carry on. So this is the first thing, yeah? Right view comes first. You understand right intention and wrong intention. What are your motives? What are the things that drive you? And you may think this is obvious. Of course, I understand this, but actually it is not that obvious at all uh, because these things are very profound. Uh, ill will and uh, uh, sensory desire are very deep things. It's very hard to understand these fully. Uh, yeah, I remember that a large part of what we call uh, desires in the sensory realm. That's actually a better way of translating desire in the sensory realm because it includes everything within that realm. Uh, when we talk about sensual desire, it's usually a very narrow kind of thing, uh, but it's actually a very broad thing. Uh, 
and it includes things like attachments in that area yeah and attachments in the sensory realm is very is very large you know if you think about what is the sensory realm and it is really everything that happens to you from the moment you wake up to the time you go to bed apart from maybe when you come here to the bsv and you do some meditation and you let go of that for a while and you find some inner peace okay then you're not so related to the sensory realm still you are probably related to it somewhat unless your meditation is really profound but an ordinary meditation when you just find a little bit of peace you're still very much connected with the sensory realm, the body and these things. So it's always there. It's always around us. We are completely immersed in the sensory realm from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. And then when you dream at night, you dream more about the sensory realm. Yeah, It just goes on and on and on. So this is our world. So no wonder we are attached to this. This is our entire world pretty much. Of course, we're going to have desires in that realm. It's impossible not to because this is our world. So... By stepping out of that world, we can see it is a massive step. It is really, that's why it is so hard to do, because this is uh, what, what our life is all about. Listen, you can now start to see the limitations of translations like sensual pleasures yeah, or sensual desire, because it's so much more than that. It is a very broad thing. And if there's one thing that really stops us from going deep in meditation, it is precisely that attachment. I want to hear, I want to see, I want to experience the world. Yeah, this is what life is about. And actually giving all that up completely, it is actually very, it takes a lot of development. I wouldn't say it's hard, it's not hard, but it takes development. It takes a different kind of view. It takes a different approach. You must look at the world in a new way. Then you can move away from all of that. Yeah, it is very profound. It's a very different kind of teaching. It's a very different kind of spirituality from what most people in the world uh, deal with. Uh, this is why it is turning around 180 degrees. Uh, and that is not even the end of it. It goes even beyond that, of course. Uh, so right view, understanding these things is actually profound. Uh, and uh, you know when your mind is pointing in the wrong way. And you know when your mind is pointing in the right way. Uh, this is that right view, the noble ones especially that they have. And we try to, uh, try to approximate that right view by uh, trying to understand these teachings. So uh, that is one's right view. And then uh, the Buddha goes on. And what uh, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, uh, everyone, pasakas, upasakas, what is wrong intention? Uh, it is the intention imbued with sensual desire or with or with sensory sensory desire the intention imbued with ill will and the intention imbued with cruelty it says here is the wrong intention and um, so intention of sensual desire this is kind of the movement towards the sensory objects of the world yeah an interest in those attachment to those the intention of ill will is the intention where you are driven by ill will, you're driven by anger and irritation or whatever it is uh, in all its various uh, degrees. Uh, intention of cruelty, well this is a bit more tricky. What does it mean? What does this exactly mean? Uh, the Pali word is vihingsa and uh, vihingsa means like harming, yeah, being hurtful to others. Uh, this is what it is about. Uh, and uh, 
You will notice that these three terms, they are quite close to the terms that we often talk about, the roots of actions, yeah? The uh, uh, loba dosa moha, yeah? Loba dosa moha is quite similar to that. Loba being close to what is here, kama chanda, or kama, the sensual desire, yeah? Loba is like that. Loba is also often translated as greed, but it really refers to sensory, the sensory realm. Dosa, very close to what is here, here is a ill will. Dosa is the flaw of the mind. Dosa really means flaws, and it is here related to viapada. Viapada is a second hindrance, yeah, ill will, etc. And then you have moha, which is delusion or confusion. These are the three roots of actions, yeah, the three motivations that you find everywhere in the suttas. And this is very similar. The first two are almost exactly the same as the first two of those three roots. So what about this last one, cruelty? How does that, how does that fit into this picture? Does it have anything to do with moha, perhaps, and delusion? And the answer is... Yes, probably. It, has, it is related to the idea of moha. But the point is that moha is not really a motiv- motivating factor. Yeah, you don't act because you are. Delusion doesn't actually make you act. In his, ill will certainly makes you act. Yeah, desire makes you act. These are very compelling and powerful forces that really drive our lives. This is why we get up in the morning. This is why we do almost anything. Yeah, yeah, these are the desires driving forces in our life. But delusion in itself is not the driving force. It is the consequences of delusion that are the driving forces. And so uh, sensory desire is a consequence of delusion. Yeah, ill will is a consequence of delusion. Uh, but here the Buddha adds another consequence, and that is what he here calls vihingsa, called harming or cruelty. Uh, and what it really means is that it means you don't care about the consequences of your actions. Uh, yeah, you don't care the effect that your actions have on other people. Uh, it's like the opposite of compassion, the anti-compassion. Uh, yeah, this, the, the, okay, you're walking down the path uh, and you see lots of ants walking on the path and you think, yeah, and you actually don't think at all. You just don't care about those ants because I'm going to walk on this path uh, and if you crush the ants, well, so be it. Uh, and that is not, it's not really ill will. It's just you don't care. Yeah, you couldn't really be bothered about those ants, about your effects on these other beings. Uh, and this is bad. Yeah, this is interesting. This is a kind of bad intention which is interesting. It is not really motivated by what you normally call defilement. But of course, the idea here is that you are driven by some, something inside of you that you, know, you want to walk here. It's a kind of selfishness. It's a concern for yourself. And that manifests then in, a, in a harmfulness to other beings. Yeah, that's how it manifests. It's like the opposite of compassion. When you have compassion, you care about your actions. How are my actions going to affect other people? You worry, you not, I won't say you worry about it, but you care about that. Uh, and then that becomes then a, a force for good in your life. Uh, so really, these things are the wrong intention here, are the opposite of metta, kindness, the opposite of compassion, and the opposite of uh, like renunciation. We'll talk about that in a second, what that means. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it matters that we care the consequences of our actions too has an effect on our spiritual life. So that is wrong intention. 
So what then is the right intention if this is wrong? And again, we have this strange, unusual division into two kinds of right intention. Uh, it is twofold. One which is like the ordinary right intention, and then you have the uh, right intention of the noble ones. Yeah, And it has this... Uh, unusual way that it is described it affected by the taints yeah in other words you still have defilements uh, partaking of merit in other words it is a meritorious act that has meritorious results ripening in the acquisitions which means um, much better translated by i think by uh, ajahn sujato as ripening in attachment uh, yeah it would keep on attaching to things uh, and then there's the other one, which is the noble one of the noble people, which is a factor, full factor of the noble path. So what is this right intention of the ordinary one? It is the intention to renounce, the intention of non-ill will, or metta, if you like, the intention of non-cruelty, which is compassion. This is that ordinary right intention. So what is the intention to renounce? And uh, this sounds really rough. What do you mean by renounce? Yeah? People get a bit scared when they hear the word renunciation because it sounds like something terrible. And um, it is terrible if you do it in the wrong way. If you try to renounce too fast and you push the world away with force, yeah, I'm going to renounce. Yeah, this is it. I'm going to re now really live a really simple life from here on. But you're not really ready for that. It's going to be a lot of suffering here. Yeah? So you, know, have to, you have to allow these things to develop in a fairly natural way. Otherwise, it's going to be problematic. So what does renunciation mean? Here it means the opposite of sensory desire. This is actually what it means. Ne kama is the Pali. It is derived from the word kama. Kama is sensory desire. You have to distinguish between the word kama and kama. Kama, double M, kama, long A, yeah? Kama, kama. And if you're used to Pali, you can hear the difference quite easily. Can you hear the difference? <laughs> Some of, if, if to to um, a lot of uh, Western ears, it's hard to t hear the difference. Uh, but if you are, if you are, I think if you have a kind of Sinhala background, you will hear the difference straight away because kama, double M, kama is a, a long A. It's different, pronounced quite differently. English language is very strange in that sense. You don't really pronounce double consonants properly. But in my native tongue, which used to be Norwegian, I'm not sure what it is anymore, but it used to be Norwegian in the old days, and now it's not sure. We also have double consonants, just like in Pali. Yeah. So for me, it is actually second nature to hear the difference between those two. So kamma is action. Kamma is a, a desire in the sensory realm. This is ne kamma which is like ni, karma, is the opposite of karma. It is giving up the interest in that sensory realm. That's really what it means. So how does that manifest? Yeah, and it manifests very simply, very often, by starting out to keep the five precepts. Yeah, that is already a little bit of ne karma. Yeah, you are um, not, uh, there are certain things you cannot do uh, if you're going to keep the five precepts. Yeah, you cannot, if there are some things, if you have to break the precepts to enjoy something, you know it's wrong. So you are already restraining, restraining yourself to some extent. Yeah, so it's not so bad, yeah, nekama. Yeah, when you look at it that way, it's kind of acceptable. All you have to do is keeping the five precepts. And I, I don't know if all of you are, all of you keep, do you all of you keep the five? You don't have to raise your hand. Yeah, I'm just going to, I'm just asking these things just to be a bit naughty. But this is... Um, 
fundamental Buddhist teachings. Yeah, and I would, if you're not keeping the five precepts regularly, I would really recommend you to undertake that. It is one of the really foundational aspects of Buddhist practice. And in fact, and this is one of the things I always say on retreats, uh, is that you sh- we need to actually go much further than keeping the five precepts. It's not enough to really gain the benefits of this path, uh, but it is a very important foundation. So please, please, please keep those. Yeah, Out of respect for the Buddha, out of respect for your fellow human beings, out of respect, not the least, uh, for yourself. Uh, keep the five precepts, uh, because it is uh, a foundational. That is already Nekama. But then the Nekama goes much further. And a lot of the nekama, the only way you can really have nekama is go back to the idea of right view and to understand the limitations of the sensory world, how unreliable it is, how uncertain it is, how out of control it is, how it will never lead to satisfaction. Yeah, And it's so important to get that, because once you start to get that, actually the turning away happens quite naturally. Why are you going to be interested in things that always ultimately lead to dukkha? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And I will later on, I will going to uh, read out one of my favorite suttas, the Potalia Sutta, which gives all these beautiful similes uh, about the limits of the sensory world. Uh, and every retreat I read this out. Uh, and sometimes I see people rolling their eyes, but that's okay. I don't mind if you roll your eyes. You're welcome to roll your eyes. Uh, I'm still going to read it out regardless. Uh, <laughs> not because I want to torture you, but because... I enjoy it, yeah. It's just sel- pure selfish indulgence on my part. Uh. <laughs> so um, that is nekama, and it can, of course, it gets taken to very profound levels, yeah. If you have this intention deeply enough, that is where samadhi emerges from. That nekama vitaka, nekama sankappa. So uh, that is the right. Um, intention and then your whole path of Buddhism then takes a direction that accords with that. Uh, then you have the intention of non-ill will which is basically about metta, yeah, kindness, uh, um, understanding people in the right way and then the um, uh, intention of compassion uh, yeah, and uh, not really wanting to hurt anyone in the world. In fact wanting to do the opposite, wanting to be kind to people in the world. Uh, and uh, that all of those are the right kinds of intention. And then there is a factor called. Uh, uh, then you have the factor of the supramundane right intention. I'm just going to leave that out because actually it is not very interesting at all. It just is, it may look interesting to your eyes if you saw it because it has all of this strange. Uh, um, well, let me read it out to you because I've got my computer, so I might as well use it, uh, otherwise it's kind of a waste. Uh, mm-hmm. This was given to me recently, so I'm really proud of this one. Huh? And uh, so um, it's actually not mine even, it actually belongs to the monastery. I just want to make that absolutely clear here, so you don't get the wrong uh, wrong ideas. Uh. <laughs> it's really nice not to own things, yeah? And so when I when I leave, I can just leave it behind if I want to, which is kind of handy here. Yeah. Uh, where are we? So this is uh, how the noble, the supramundane, or the the, the 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 right intention, which is of the noble one. This is how it is uh, 
explain. That is why I don't read it out. Now you get an idea. So what is the right thought that is noble, undefiled, transcendent, a factor of the path? It is the thinking, the placing of the mind, thought, applying, application, implanting of the mind, verbal processes in one of noble mind, an undefiled mind who possesses the noble path and develops the noble path. This is right thought that is noble. I don't know, what do you think of that? Do you think that's good? <laughs> this is very much like the Abhidhamma. This is how the Abhidhamma works. It has all these kind of synonyms and one thing after the other. And um, it can be interesting. I, I, I shouldn't be too dismissive of these kind of things. But uh, really, it is uh, more an uh, exercise in kind of philosophy and in the precision and drawing things together than really being all that illuminating. Yeah. And uh, that's why I don't really... I don't really kind of find it all that interesting. So, but it is there. So if you want to look it up, you, of course, you are very welcome to do so. So, uh, okay. So I used my baby once. That's good. Um, now let us uh, look at the very end of this idea of intention. <coughs> and again, it says, uh, you make the effort to abandon wrong intention and enter upon right intention. This is your right effort. Mindfully you abandon wrong intention. Mindfully you enter upon and abide in right intention. This is your right mindfulness. Thus these three states run and circle around right intention. That is right view, right effort and right mindfulness. Yeah, right view is what makes you know what is right intention. And then you have to use effort to Go get into right intention or right thought, uh, yeah, or right motivation. Uh, what is that right effort? Well, it can be many things, uh, but one of the things that it is is right view. Yeah, remember the noble eightfold path, as I mentioned yesterday, is sequential. Uh, it is a causal path with each factor conditions the next one. Uh, so if your right view if your right view is right now, if your view is right, then your intention will start to align with that right view. So by purifying your right view, intention also falls into line. That is one way of doing it. Yeah. Another way is, of course, to work with your mind more directly. Okay, I have wrong intention. How can I change my intention? And sometimes if your view is already established, you can just change your attention like that, just by coming mindful. Wow, I'm getting upset. Okay. Let me move away from that. And your mindfulness will be sufficient to, to drive away that uh, thought of ill will or whatever it is. But to be able to do that, uh, you already have to develop your right view a lot. Yeah. Otherwise, your mindfulness is not going to be sufficient. Otherwise, you just become mindful of being angry and then nothing happens. You're still angry. Huh? You know what I mean? Huh? Yeah. It's, mindfulness in itself is not sufficient. It needs to be supported by something more. Either right view or by having developed metta in the past. And when these things support mindfulness, then mindfulness becomes very powerful. In fact, there is a sutta in the Sangyutta Nikaya, where the Buddha specifically says that mindfulness on its own does not overcome the defilements of the mind. You overcome, actually specifically talks about anger. To overcome anger, you need metta, says the Buddha. So of course, mindfulness is helpful, Full because mindfulness informs you that something is wrong, that you need to do something. But then you need to apply other aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path to be able to overcome it. 
And this is really the critical thing. So you need that right view. Yeah, that right view then gives rise to metta, uh, and the metta then kind of you know takes the place of the ill will. Uh. So mindfulness is not enough. This is such an important point, and a point that is lost on so much of the modern world, the mindfulness movement, and all of these kind of things. And you know, mindfulness movement is great. It's marvelous that people use mindfulness in their lives, and they will make their life better, no doubt. But it is nowhere near enough if you want to really use your mind in the right way. You have to add something more. Mindfulness has to be informed by something more profound that guides it in the right way. Otherwise, it is really useless. So um, it's important not to kind of pull out the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path individually, try to apply them individually without understanding the context. Without context, they are quite meaningless. Only within con a context of a broader outlook do these things fall into place and become meaningful. So adding virtue, adding right view, adding all of these other marvelous qualities to right mindfulness, then the path starts to come together then you can use the right effort to change your intentions because you understand why they should be changed, how they should be changed in accordance with a particular outlook, a way of looking at the world. Your values are basically just different. But then, of course, you do it mindfully. In other words, mindfulness is required for you to be even aware that your intention is wrong. So you always mindfulness always has to be part of this. Uh, yeah, without mindfulness too, there is no development. Uh, it also fundamental aspect of this. Uh, you can also think of this as clear comprehension or full awareness. Yeah, sampajanya in the Pali language. Uh, the sampajanya, which has, which is kind of the standing back uh, and the seeing what is going on, uh, understanding what works and what doesn't work, uh, yeah? and then moving the mind in the right direction. Sati, Sampajanya, is one of these factors uh, that you see on the Buddhist path a lot, uh, all the time. Uh. So very important part uh, of that as well, and it comes in here. Uh. So this is how this works together, yeah? and all of these factors kind of coming together in this way, right intention. Uh. So uh, there you are. Um, I wasn't going to spend too much time on this, so let's uh, move on to the next one, right speech. So we're still dealing with the uh, preliminaries of the path. And uh, I, I always like to, you know, re-establish all the basic things, even though you probably know a lot of this already. It's just marvelous to be able to kind of re-remind uh, ourselves of what actually these things are, because... Uh, it is so useful. So right speech, yeah. So the, this is what uh, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Actually, let me let me read another translation, just to confuse you a little bit. So I'm gonna this, you're gonna have one thing here, and you're gonna hear something else. <laughs> Okay, so this is uh, Adansudado. In this context, right view comes first. How does right view come first? When you understand wrong speech as wrong speech and right speech as right speech. That is your right view. And what is wrong speech? Speech that is false, divisive, harsh, and nonsensical. That is wrong speech. Let's just stop there because that's already a lot. And um, 
So first of all, as always, right view is what helps you distinguish between right speech and wrong speech. And again, it may seem obvious that what right speech and wrong speech are, but actually it is not obvious at all, because all of these things come in a great degree of varieties and shades. Yeah. So actually it is quite hard to know this fully. We have a certain idea, but as you start to develop these things, you start to uncover more, more and more subtle ideas of what is right and wrong factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, these things are are quite deep and very often we have to be really honest with ourselves to see if we are using speech in the right way. Action, thought, all of these things. And then we have the four standard four factors of wrong speech. Yeah, False, divisive, harsh and nonsensical. Not sure about nonsensical but anyway um, <laughs> I, I prefer idle chatter. That's what I prefer here uh, because that to me is, is a kind of the uh, the best one. Bigger body has gossip in here, which I also think is not really ideal. But uh, idle chatter, I think, comes closest to to the one. Um, let's carry on. What is a right speech? Right speech is twofold. Yeah. So we have this idea of the ordinary right speech, and then the higher noble right speech. Again. And what is the right speech that is the ordinary one? It is the refraining from lying, from divisive speech, from harsh speech, and from talking nonsense. This is the right speech that is of the ordinary kind. So, um, what is this kind of right speech? Yeah, and uh, as I pointed out yesterday, which I always like to point out, is that. Uh, um, now you will see the right speech it's much more than just the abstinence from wrong speech it is actually a direct application of speech that is positive and that has a positive impact on the world yeah so we should avoid things that are bad and we should do things that are deliberately kind how can i say something nice today how can i say something which goes to the heart of another person yeah this should be a kind of our outlook at the back of the mind. And it doesn't mean just chatting away. You don't actually have to say very much at all. Very often it's much better to say very little. You know what I mean? There's a nice sutta somewhere. I read this out recently in Perth because we did this uh, uh, long sequence of workshops on the Noble Eightfold Path. I don't know, maybe some of you saw some of that. but uh, And uh, one of the great suttas, which I pulled out and when you do this kind of things you look at the suttas a little bit you try to find things that you haven't taught before and i found this sutta which i couldn't remember and i you know no wonder because so many suttas of course you're not going to remember all of them but uh, there was this sutta which said that well you know don't talk too much talk little because if you talk too much what happens well if you talk too much what happens is that you lie you talk harshly you talk divisively and you talk nonsense yeah, that's what happens. If you talk a lot, these things eventually come out. Uh, because there's only, I mean, how much can you say, oh, what a beautiful day it is. You have, you're such a wonderful person. You can't say that all the time. Yeah, And if you say it all the time, it loses its power anyway. You don't want to say these things all the time. You want to say it at the right time and right place. Uh, but a lot of the time, the reason why we talk a lot is precisely because we want to get something off our chest. Yeah? Something that is bothering us. There's someone who's irritating us or whatever. And then we end up saying stupid things as a consequence. Uh, a lot to be said for silence. Uh, yeah? The highest kind of right speech might just be silence. Uh, it is. Yeah? It's called noble silence for a reason. Uh, 
So uh, that is one of the first things to realize about this. Uh, yeah, speech, limited speech, uh, is a very positive thing here. Yeah. Does that make sense? Uh, you're not supposed to talk, are you? So you can't really answer me because. <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Yeah. So uh, what then? Uh, if we do speak, what then should we say? Yeah. And um, so this is uh, the uh, standard way that this is uh, uh, talked about in the suttas everywhere. So you you abandon false speech, you abstain from false speech, you speak the truth, adhere to truth, you are trustworthy and reliable, you are no deceiver of the world. Yeah, so you can, on the one hand, you abstain from outright lying, from going to court, putting your hand on the Dhammapada saying, I've promise to tell the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth, or whatever. I don't know what they say in this court case, but something like that, yeah? That's what you see on TV anyway, that's what they say on TV, so probably something something to that. And then you lie yeah, afterwards. That is really, really bad. And that is where you, because you promise one thing, and you do the exact opposite. So not only, but not only do you avoid that, but you will notice that here, it specifically says that you adhere to truth. You are trustworthy and reliable. It's not just that you avoid lying, but your words are generally close to reality, as close as possible. You're not a lawyer, a hair-splitting lawyer who says, yeah, I'm not breaking the precept, yeah, I'm as close as I can to lying without lying, yeah, yeah? you're trying to kind of avoid telling the truth, but you are as honest and reliable as you possibly can be, so people feel they can rely on you. When you speak, they know that this person is trying the very best to... Um, to say to say what actually is happening here, of course, it, this doesn't mean that you should be abused. The idea of right speech it doesn't it shouldn't be harsh with your words. Uh, you shouldn't say, "Yeah, I'm going to tell you the truth" or whatever, you know, something like that. Yeah, I'm going to let them hear the truth. Yeah, that's not really the truth. Yeah, the idea here is just to uh, to be judicious, of course, to be careful how you use that right speech. Uh, so this is a. Very important point, uh, yeah, the idea of being as truthful as possible. And sometimes it may be painful to be truthful. Sometimes you may feel a bit of shame of something you have said and done. Uh, but it's better than to own up to that uh, and to say, okay, whatever, I don't really care. And then uh, be honest about what is happening. And that, in the long run, will be what that right speech is about. Uh. And then we have the idea of abandoning divisive speech. You abstain from divisive speech. Uh, you don't repeat elsewhere what you have heard here in order to divide people from each other. Nor, nor do you do the opposite, divide those from these or these from those. Thus you are someone who reunites those who are divided. A promoter of unity or harmony. Someone who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord or harmony, if you like. Delights in harmony. A speaker of words that promote harmony. Yeah, you bring people together. You kind of make the world a better place instead of keeping us, dividing us, as we are already so divided in our society. The world is such a divided place. It is almost as if we don't see the people on the other side as human beings anymore. That's how divided we become. Politics has become this extraordinarily divisive sphere. 
in uh, so many countries, uh, yeah, often led by the United States and everyone following along as sheep after the Americans uh, doing exactly the same silly things. Uh, sometimes when you see other countries doing something stupid, we should not go there, yeah, but we follow along like sheep, uh, as if this is exactly what we should be doing. Yeah. Australian politics also becoming quite divided, divisive, it seems to me. I, I don't really know all that much, but that whenever I see some news or whatever, it looks like it is a kind of heading in the same direction. But we don't really want this kind of cultural wars. We don't want this, uh, you know, left versus right and the other side being non-human and we are the only humans. And for that reason, we can kill them just like we can kill the Tamils because they're not really human on the other side. That is where it leads to. It leads to violence. It leads to animosity. It leads to... Uh, um, you know, diminishing the humanity of the people on the other side. Uh, and that is very, very problematic. Uh, so you need to remember that um, people of any political stripe, people of almost any persuasion, uh, uh, you know, have good qualities very often. There are maybe some extreme ideologies whereby you, you are kind of really on the verge. You can really ask yourself whether... They, you know, there's a lot of uh, maybe hatred going on or whatever. But even they are people at the end of the day. Even the people who have the most hatred in the world are people. Uh, and if you try to understand them, try to figure out what, what is going on, you will find the humanity under the surface. Uh, and often it is, uh, you know, traumas and problems in their life that have led them astray. And by kind of gently guiding them in the right direction, at the very least having compassion for them. Uh, and if you cannot change them around, okay, that's fine. You don't have to, but you can still have compassion uh, for them from a distance uh, because you know that they are have been led astray somehow. Uh. So in this way, we become more unifiers in society. We become people who understand the other side as well, not just our own side. Uh. And uh, then uh, things are become tend to become, you know, we need that harmony to be able to work together. It doesn't mean we all have to agree. We don't have to agree. It's impossible to agree because we're all different. Uh, we all come from different perspectives. Uh, but we tolerate each other uh, and we can have compassion and understanding for each other, even if we do disagree about things. Uh, do we ever disagree, Adam Nisarno? <laughs> I think sometimes we'd probably do, yeah, and 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 that and that's okay, and we don't. It doesn't mean that we argue a lot. I can't. I cannot. Have we have we ever argued before? Huh? Maybe we have disagreed, but not really. Kind of getting the fists out or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. No. Works. <laughs> yeah. We don't. We don't really have many arguments in the monastery in terms of that kind of arguments, but we we certainly we disagree sometimes. So. Disagreement is fine. Absolutely. Yeah. So, oops. What happened? We agree to disagree, that's right, exactly. <laughs> we dis disagree harmoniously here. And then you have the next one, which is the harsh speech. Yeah, having abandoned harsh speech, uh, he abstains from harsh speech. He speaks words that are gentle, uh, pleasing to the ear, lovable, uh, words that go to the heart, haddaya uh, gamma, courteous words that are desired by many people uh, and agreeable to many people. Uh, So uh, again, yeah, I remember a while ago, I was, I was in England, I was doing a retreat in England, uh, and uh, you know how swearing is becoming very popular around the world. The Australians are famous for, the, for swearing quite a lot, yeah? And so, but so that's true in, in the UK as well. People really like to swear these days. You know, when I grew up, swearing was much more kind of, you know, it was considered much more worse. But these days, people swear 
everywhere. So they, I was asked this question. I really like the, I really like the F word. Yeah, I, I really like to use this word. And uh, is it bad to use the F word? I, I can't. I, I don't feel I can say it as a monk. So I just call it call it that. And uh, so is it? So I had made me think. Yeah, is it bad to swear? And uh, I think the answer is it really depends how you do it. Of course, if you swear because you abuse people, then it is really bad. Yeah, and very often swearing is used precisely for abuse, and that is why it has such a bad name. But these days, swearing is often used just to emphasize something, used like an adjective. It is roughly equivalent to very. Yeah, it just means very. Yeah, that's all it means really <laughs> these days. And if you use it like that because you want to emphasize something, is it really bad? And the answer is. I don't think it is necessarily all that evil. Yeah, it's not necessarily bad. It may not be super refined, that's for sure. But, but you know, it is not necessarily so bad either. And uh, so this is kind of it is very often it is not what we do, but how we do things that is much more important. Uh, yeah. So um, it's, I'm not kind of trying to promote using these kind of words. That's not really the point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying that we it's good to be tolerant even about such things and look at these things in the right way. Uh. I really liked that, that question. That was really cool. That was a cool question, I thought. But um, so the point is that we use words that go to the heart, yeah, that are kind of pleasing to people, whereby people feel good in your presence. Yeah, They feel relaxed and at ease in your presence because they feel that they are cared for they are listened to they are you know they are you you have their best interest at heart and if you have the people's best interest at heart that is what really matters here yeah. and the last one having abandoned idle chatter you abstain from idle chatter you speak at the proper time you speak what is fact speak what is beneficial speak on the teaching and the training at the proper time you speak words that are worth recording reasonable, succinct, yeah, you don't carry on forever, and they are beneficial. Yeah, yeah and again, it's very nice and very beautiful. Again, it means that speech is often limited. Yeah, if you're going to talk only about, uh, about Dhamma and training, in other words, about um, things that are meaningful, that actually lead to something beneficial in the long run, then th there is much less to talk about usually if you do that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, that is the idea of abandoning. So that is the whole thing with false speech. So uh, I don't know about you, but I like to think about speech as a way of giving a gift to other people. Uh, yeah, uh, When you speak in the right way, it's like, it's my opportunity to, to actually give something to someone. Uh, even when I sit here, I try to speak in a way, I try to be conscious of my speech all the time. Uh, yeah. And sometimes I probably get get it slightly wrong. I may say something inappropriate. I mean that this is just life, yeah. But uh, I, you try to be conscious. How can I say something here, uh, which is really a gift to other people? Uh, and uh, once you think like that, then there are so many opportunities of giving gifts in your life, uh, because obviously we have to communicate quite a lot. Uh, and if you, every time you communicate, you communicate in a way that has these kind of qualities. Uh, and you're always giving something to somebody else. Uh, you're making them feel better. You're giving them the gift of feeling good, of feeling happy, of reducing their suffering in life. Uh, and what a marvelous thing that is if we can do this uh, uh, so continuously. Uh, that is kind of the idea of, uh, of right speech. Uh, 
anyway, I, I wasn't going to sp spend so much time on these things. So um, then again, the very last uh, uh, paragraph here is that you make the effort to abandon wrong speech and to enter upon right speech. That is your right effort. Mindfully you abandon wrong speech, mindfully you enter upon and abide in right speech. That is your right mindfulness. And thus these three qualities, they run and circle around right speech. That is right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. Yeah, you have to make an effort to abandon wrong speech. How do you make that effort? This is actually quite interesting as well. Yeah, how do you make that? Well, one way is just to force yourself. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything bad. I'm going to say something nice. Oh, may you be happy. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> and it doesn't come from your heart. Sometimes it's impossible. Yeah, sometimes you feel negative or ill will and you have to force yourself. It's very unpleasant to say something which is exactly the opposite of how you feel. It feels like lack of integrity. It doesn't feel nice. And people can usually feel it that you don't mean it anyway. Yeah. It's like you're gritting your teeth and squeezing the words out with a desperation almost. So the really the trick to having right speech is to change your attitude before you speak. That is really the trick. So if you feel like saying bad things, well, you ask yourself, why do I feel this way? What is going on? And then you use your right view. You use the development of your mind from the past to change your attitude reminding yourself these people are also in the same boat as I. Everyone in this world is suffering in many, so many ways. Do I really want to make them suffer more? Or do I want to help them lift their lives up to make their lives better? What do I really want? And if you think about it, it is such a marvelous and beautiful thing to help other people experience more happiness. Yeah, is that a wonderful thing to do? And if you have the ability to lift people's life up, I'm sure most of you want to do that. And remember, if someone is really being bad towards you, they're doing the wrong thing, always remember that they are deluded. They don't know what they're doing. Anyone who is doing anything bad, they're hurting themselves first and foremost. Nobody in the right mind wants to hurt themselves. It means that they are deluded. They're in the dark. And then you can have compassion for them. And when you have compassion for them, you can be kind towards them. So shift your view, first of all. Shift your mental attitude, then the speech will come out in the right way. Try not to kind of grit your teeth and say the right thing, because it is so painful. It's almost like violence towards yourself if you do that. And we should always be kind to ourselves, first and foremost. Yeah? This is the way to unify being kind to yourself and also being kind to others. Then you get the balance just right. Spiritual practice is just that, is the combination of kindness to yourself and kindness to others. Uh, any act you do that has those two qualities uh, is a spiritual act, a Buddhist act. Uh. So uh, there you are, right speech. Oh, okay, right action. We have to do right, right action. We'll do that one next. Uh, we'll just do it. Uh, we'll do it now, if you don't mind. Um, so, uh, right action. Uh, again, right view comes first. How does right view come first? You understand wrong action as wrong action and right action as right action. That is your right view. Yeah, again, these things can be very subtle. Uh, yeah, so that is why right, this actually is much more deep than it may appear at first sight. Uh, what is wrong action? Uh, 
killing living beings, stealing, and sexual misconduct. This is wrong action. Yeah, we all know about that standard definition of wrong action. And again, it is twofold. It is both the ordinary one and the noble right action. Uh, and uh, so what is the ordinary right action? Uh, again, abstaining from killing living beings, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct. This is the ordinary right action. Uh, and just let me read this out from this other source here because it adds a little bit to this. Uh, so you abandon the destruction of life or killing with rod and weapon laid aside. Conscientious and kindly, you dwell compassionate towards all living beings. Yeah, it has again this opposite side to things. Not only do you lay things aside, but you actively practice compassion in your actions. Yeah, you, uh, whatever that is in your actions, you give someone a pat on the back, or you give them a hug, or you, you know, whatever it is that is kind of kindly, you give them support them in one way or another, and uh, that is your uh, your kindness. So again, it is about kind, kind, uh, kindness in how you treat others, not just about avoiding the killing of uh, living beings. Uh, even the animals, yeah, the little, little ants or whatever it is, and the spiders in your cutie. You see a red-back spider. We have heaps of these. Have you got red-back spiders here in Melbourne? Not so many. Not so many. Okay. In, in WA, heaps of red-back spiders. They're everywhere. Yeah? And they are, when you see them, people kind of freak out. Oh, no, a red-back. Yeah. But after being, they're not actually all that dangerous. Yeah, they're actually very shy little creatures. If they if they bite you, they can be get quite a bad infection and it can be quite painful. They say, I have seen so many. They're all around my cutie. I don't know maybe they are attracted to monks or something. I'm not sure. But uh, so you just pick them up with a broom, not with your hand, <laughs> and then you kind of take them away and you put them in the forest. Yeah, and you're quite happy. You don't have aversion towards these. These are all living beings trying to live in their own way. And just by kind of a little bit of sympathy to living beings, everyone wants to live. These beings also have consciousness, they have feelings. And once you remember that, it's possible to be kind even to the most, you know, it's hard to, far to feel much sympathy with cockroaches because they are so ugly and so kind of, you know, terrible. But they too have feelings, that's the point. They are afraid, they run away when they see you. They know that human beings are dangerous, yeah? Usually human beings, they have a shoe and they whack them over the head if they don't run away. Yeah? So human beings are, they know that they are very big, strong and dangerous. Yeah? Then you have the abandoning, taking what is not given, abandoning stealing, not stealing. Yeah? Uh, it takes only what is given. He desire only what is given it says here expects what is given but actually desire what is given is better and you dwell honestly without thoughts of theft the opposite of that is generosity yeah it's not even mentioned here why not well because it is an own topic of its own in the suttas it's just a large topic in the suttas you abandon sexual activity you observe celibacy so this is like for monastics living apart abstaining from sexual intercourse the common person's practice so the opposite of that what is opposite the opposite of that is meditation is samadhi yeah because uh, uh, this this is kind of the um, uh, this is like go the mind going into the world uh, into worldly pleasures, the opposite of that is really the peace of the mind, the stillness of the mind, uh, giving up, uh, giving this up. Um, 
I should maybe just add, just for the sake of those of you who are new to this, this is this is meant specifically for monastics, but for lay people there is what you call a, um, a sexual uh, avoiding sexual misconduct, uh, which basically means that you 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 use your whatever sexuality you use it in a way that doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, that's what that is about. Uh, Buddhism is not anti-sex. It is not nothing wrong with sex as such, uh, unless you are trying to achieve some even higher states, then they become an obstruction to those higher states. But the sex is not bad, according to Buddhism. Okay, the last one. You make an effort to abandon wrong action and to enter upon right action. This is one's right effort. Mindfully, you abandon wrong action. Mindfully, you enter upon and dwell in right action. This is one's right mindfulness. Thus, these three qualities run and circle around right action. That is right effort, right view, right effort, and right mindfulness. Uh, yeah, so you, again, you have to make the effort. And remember again, just like with right speech, uh, the effort is often best made by changing your mental outlook. Uh, the way that you look about, look at things so that your actions come naturally. That is the best way of doing it. Uh, not to force yourself into these kind of things. Uh, yeah, and you are mindful, you are aware of what you're doing, you know what's going on. Uh, and then this, all of this comes together uh, nicely as a consequence. Um, yeah, I think I will stop there. I had intended to get a bit further, but this is life for you. Uh, you never get as far as you wish. Uh, you rarely die as an arahant. Uh, but uh, anyway, this is how things often go. <laughs> so uh, everyone, that is uh, all for this morning. Uh, uh, please keep on enjoying yourself. Have a nice lunch. Uh, and then we'll see you back again at 2 o'clock. Uh.